I think one of the mistakes that get made sometimes is you send an individual to a course and the expectation placed on him on his return isn't really fair or appropriate. So when they come back, they kind of expect this individual to be a, an overnight, you know, master ninja of, of that discipline. Enchanted Sky Media. 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 From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. Technical rescues are high-risk, low-frequency incidents, and that means training on them is critical. One mistake and you could have a very bad day. If you know NFPA 1006, you know the minimum KSAs are tough, but departments routinely face problems with training. They may have a shortage of really good instructors, current equipment, or funding for adequate training time. Back with me on Code 3 this time to offer some solutions is Dalen Zartman. Dalen is a technical rescue expert for the Ohio Emergency Management Agency and Department of Homeland Security. He serves as Regional Training Program Director and Advisory Board Member at Bowling Green State University. Dalen is a member of the Central Ohio Strike Team in the Washington Township Fire Department. And he's founder and president of Rescue Methods. Dalen Zartman joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Thanks for having me, Scott. So one of the biggest challenges for some departments is finding enough skilled trainers in-house to teach their classes. How do you recommend addressing this situation? There's a a variety of ways to approach that. If you want to try and stay internal and rely on your own personnel, I think the the first key is to identify some really, really reputable high-level training programs. Sometimes they're in-state, sometimes they're out-of-state. So you've got to kind of scour your own community resources, see what's available. If it's not, if, if there's not high-level training that's available to you in your own market, then, then look elsewhere. Identify your high performers within the department that have an interest and a passion in technical rescue, and then send those individuals out to go receive certification and high-level training. I think one of the mistakes that get made sometimes is you send an individual to a course and the expectation placed on him on his return isn't really fair or appropriate. So when they come back, they kind of expect this individual to be a, an overnight, you know, master ninja of, of that discipline. Uh, and that's not fair. We all know that in the, in the course of study, you can develop that, you know, that foundational skill set and some mastery technique. But it takes a long time to progress to the point that you're really, really in a, in a high-level instructorship capability. So that's kind of step one. Step two with those individuals is to continue to give them opportunities to be mentored and develop their instructional capabilities within that discipline. A lot of times encouraging them to work 
or local vocational programs or, or other training groups so that they can kind of refine their skill sets to get better as instructors is, is a great plan. And during that, that uh, course of time, they can kind of supplement the training in-house and start bringing their own personnel up to speed. Now, I am reminded of that old phrase from EMS, watch one, do one, teach one. Yes, sir. The problem is that some people say, watch one, do one, kill one. (laughs) Because you don't have the skills necessary that quickly. And what I'm getting at here, and I don't mean to be flippant, what I'm getting at here, though, is that if you've got a small department who wants to take this on, they're going to get their guy trained up. They're going to tell him, hey, you're coming back here to teach us. He's going to be gung-ho about doing it, but doesn't it take a lot of restraint to say, wait a minute, guys, I don't really have all the skills necessary yet? It, it does, Scott. I, I mean, it takes a lot of, of humility and honest reflection on, you know, your own ability base to do that. And I think passionate guys will do that, but it, yeah, it, it can absolutely get carried away and put people in bad predicaments uh, you know, as a as an instructor that shouldn't be an instructor yet, and as the peers who are receiving information that may not be great information. So, yeah, I would encourage departments going down that path to think of it as a long-term investment where they are developing instructors over a long period of time with lots of repetition and lots of exposure to high-level practitioners. I, I think the better solution is to bring outside agencies in uh, who are already that, you know, expertise level training type organization, let them come in and deliver direct courses to your organization. The downside of that is it's costly, but it's usually, it's usually more affordable than, than farming out, you know, your entire department and sending them somewhere else to receive training. So those are kind of the, the three options. You know, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but it turns out I don't know. Is there such a thing as train-the-trainer classes for technical rescue? They are, and and the one point of caution I would stress about the the train-the-trainer courses is this. Train-the-trainer courses that have a prerequisite of already being a very advanced-level practitioner are pretty solid courses because you're basically taking practitioners that are already at the highest level of their skill set. You're bringing them in, and you're, you're basically training them to deliver the coursework. So you're providing them curriculum, subject matter support, but their skill sets and knowledge base are pretty much already there. It's more about how do you package and deliver coursework. Those are good courses. The train the trainer courses that kind of take you from level A to level C overnight and then give you a certificate that says, hey, by the way, you've completed the train the trainer, you're qualified to go instruct this course. There's a lot of those out there. Those are the courses that I'd be leery of because they're not requiring that prerequisite of you already being an experienced practitioner. All right, then. Another tough situation for some departments is making hands-on technical rescue training available. It takes equipment and resources other than your standard burn building. How do you suggest departments develop programs to teach hands-on skills when when they don't necessarily have the facilities to do it? Yeah, that's also tough. Um, cooperative programming is usually the best way to tackle this. So if you've got a collection of of organizations that all run mutual aid with each other, if they kind of analyze, you know, a specific discipline that they want to meet the need of in in their their districts, they can kind of divvy up what those resources look like so it's not such a heavy financial burden and logistical burden on each one of those individual departments. 
they can kind of spread load that responsibility and requirement list. And, and, and it just makes it an easier burden to bite off. And then they collaboratively come together. They can support each other, you know, communally through mutual aid training, large training venues where they, where they all come together one and, and help resource what's necessary to pull those off. Another good avenue is to rely on manu- local manufacturers and dealers. Most manufacturers and dealers are apt to provide product support for training because it puts their product in the end user's hands and ultimately may potentially result in sales for them. So when you need more specialized items uh, that a department may not have, a lot of times they can reach out to their local dealer. They can get some manufacturer support. Uh, and those local dealers a lot of times have their own subject matter experts or rescue specialists that can help conduct some of the training, especially when it's specific to high-level or new uh, innovative equipment. That's another way to tackle the problem. I imagine there's got to be some coordination problems trying to get multiple agencies to have time to work together. So given that, does that mean that you're going to do fewer of these iterations and have to try to get more done on your own? Or what What does that mean? It does. You know, we've got a, a there's several templates that I've participated in my career. And the one that seems to be the most effective is you get all these departments together. You may identify like quarterly drills or biannual drills where all these agencies are going to come together for these, you know, these big evolutions where, where everything gets put into place. But in the, in the event or, or the time period leading up to those big drills, you create skill sheets and objective lists for all the individual organizations that are kind of smaller breakout sessions of, of what this big evolution is going to come to be. And that gives all those individual organizations time to kind of iron out you know, their deficiencies, identify any areas that they're not performing at high levels at. It also allows them to kind of share gear at different times so they can complete individual evolutions on smaller, you know, in smaller settings where there's more attention to detail and more focus on maybe technique and and skill and knowledge base than there is on the actual performance of the the scenario or the evolution. Those are good ways to kind of coordinate things and, and, uh, and iron out some of the challenge of bringing everybody together, you know, with a lot of consistency or frequency. How much value is there in doing smaller evolutions of things that you can probably handle on a local basis without help? I think it's huge, Scott. I am I, a huge believer in building blocks for training algorithms. So, you know, you always start small and you always start with foundational knowledge, skills, and abilities. And as the knowledge, skills, and abilities improve and increase, you also improve and increase the difficulty level, the equipment expertise required to perform, you know, objectives, and the scenario-based environment of performance. So the culmination should be, you know, these big elaborate scenarios that kind of test everybody's ability to problem solve. But everything leading up to that should be exactly what you're, you know, you're referencing, which is, is much smaller focused, uh, you know, one-on-one, one-on-three type of instructional periods where, there's a lot more attention to detail and ensuring that everybody's got the right foundational KSAs. Right. So you work on the individual skills and then you apply those skills in a larger a larger simulation or training session. That's absolutely it. Yep. Then there's money. This kind of training isn't free, but it's tough to spend budget dollars on training exercises. Any solutions for this? 
cooperative programming, just like we talked about with some of the other solutions, work well on the fiscal side. So a lot of technical rescue has, uh, I guess I would call it industrial crossover applications, whether it's confined space, trench rescue, high angle rescue. A lot of times there are industry settings within the run districts that present those potential for scenarios. Per OSHA, all of those industrial groups are responsible for having well-formulated rescue plans for their employees that may be operating in those environments. Rather than those employers and, and those you know industrial entities taking on the financial burden of developing their own rescue teams, many of them prefer to augment and help finance or help appropriate their local fire departments to be prepared to be their response agency for those events. That can result in equipment acquisitions. They're required by OSHA to make their spaces or similar spaces available to the responding agencies. So that creates, you know, training props, access to actual real-life training scenarios with, you know, the, the specific structures and environments that you're going to be working in. It, it creates a really financially beneficial scenario for both parties to be able to pull off a lot of these training applications. So it just requires the fire departments to identify, you know, who those, those role players are and to reach out to them and see if they're interested in a, in a cooperative approach to help offset some costs attached to that. So you're saying that we have to approach them, they're not going to come to us necessarily? It depends, Scott. So some of your larger organizations, uh, they may develop their own intrinsic solutions, but they're relying on 911 as a secondary. Industrial entities, they're really, really proactive and compliant with you know OSHA expectations. They will probably be a lot more the aggressor, I guess I would say, on seeking out you know continuity and, and mutual aid understanding and compliance with their local 911 response. Your smaller mid-range organizations may not be as aggressive about seeking that as a solution. So if it hasn't already been sought out you know, within a, a jurisdiction, that's when the AHJ or the fire department should identify, hey, maybe we should go talk to these guys and see if there's an opportunity to you know, kind of join forces and collaborate on some of this. Got it. And then you had another idea. The other avenue, grant funding is a lot more accessible when it's regionalized that affects more than just one community. So going back to square one, when we were talking about, you know, how do you create some of the resource uh, allocations and, and, you know, build out your training capabilities, when you start cooperating with other mutual aid agencies, if, if you're doing the same thing financially, whether it's your equipment components, your training dollars, uh, training simulators, training campuses, a lot of times if you can kind of regionalize and show that this cooperative is going to affect a whole lot of communities, what's accessible and available from a grant perspective is exponentially higher than if you're just a standalone fire department trying to just seek, you know, funding for the radical expense of, you know, really advanced technical rescue equipment. All right. It sounds like there are solutions out there if we look for them. Dalen Zarman, thanks for joining me today on Code 3. Thanks for having me, Scott. And there you have it. So what did you think of Dalen's suggestions? What works for your department? You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash trt. There's links to more information there as well, so check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. 
Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I sure hope you'll be here too. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.